Getting back to the Bolshevik Revolution, one of the ironies of it is that both Lenin and Trotsky were in exile, one in Germany, one in the United States. Tell us about how, who helped them get where they were going to make sure that revolution was pulled off. Well, let me summarize about four chapters into four minutes. Uh, Trotsky was in New York. He left uh, New York and went to Canada on his way to the revolution. He had $10,000 in gold on him. He was financed out of New York. There's no question about that. The British took him off the ship in Halifax, uh, Canada. Uh, they knew who he was. They knew who Trotsky was. They knew he was going to start a revolution in Russia. Instructions from London came to put Trotsky back on the boat with his party and allow them to go forward. So there is no question that Woodrow Wilson, who issued the passport for Trotsky, and the New York financiers who financed Trotsky, and the British Foreign Office allowed Trotsky to perform his part in the revolution. Now over in Switzerland you get Lenin, who was in exile. He went through Germany in the famous sealed train by permission and by, with the encouragement of the German general staff. And yet Germany and Britain were supposedly fighting each other. And you get them both moving these two key revolutionaries into place inside Russia. And then, of course, the rest is history. They created the revolution. They needed assistance from the West, and they got assistance from Germany, from Britain, and from the United States. Just tell us all over again why. Why? Just tell you won't find again. this in the textbooks. Why is to bring about, I suspect, a plan to control world society in which you and I won't find the freedoms to believe and think and do as we believe. Hello, everyone. That was a clip from the famous professor Anthony Sutton, famous in conspiracy circles anyway, for his claim that Wall Street bankers and the wider Anglo-American establishment funded the Russian Revolution. I don't think the controversy of this claim can be overstated. Accepted history has the Western powers doing everything they can to keep the communists out and keep Russia in the war. It was the Germans that were busy fermenting revolution for obvious reasons. This is what I'm going to be looking at over the next couple of episodes. For me, it's one of the most intriguing questions of history, and something I've been looking forward to since the beginning of this whole series. I'll start out by examining the Russian foreign policy objectives that led the country into the First World War. Popping into the deeper history for a moment, back in the 15th century, Tsar Ivan III threw off 200 years of dominance by the Mongol hordes. This coincides with European states beginning their colonization of the Americas and parts of Asia. Mirroring this, successive Russian Tsars turned east and colonized all the way across Siberia. By the late 18th century, they had established colonies as far away as Alaska. At the beginning of that century, the famous Peter the Great fought the Great Northern War against the Swedish Empire, the major regional power of that time. This war raged on for just over 20 years concluding with Russian victory signalling her ascent to become a major European power. Tsar Peter achieved his geostrategic objective of capturing land around the Gulf of Finland. That's the sea between Finland and modern-day Estonia and Russia. This is where he had his capital city of St. Petersburg constructed. Why was this a geostrategic objective? Well, because in spite of being the largest country in the world, for much of her history, Russia has been effectively landlocked. The port at St. Petersburg does freeze for part of the year, 
but its acquisition represented a vast improvement in Russian access to the sea. Through war with the Turkish Ottoman Empire, Peter the Great tried and failed to capture ports on the Black Sea. That's the sea at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, in between Turkey and Ukraine today. Where Peter failed, Catherine the Great succeeded half a century later, incorporating the Crimean Peninsula into Russia. At this time, Russia, along with Prussia and Austria, split up and incorporated Poland, with the country disappearing until after the First World War. A further unlikely misfortune Russia suffers from is that when she does get access to these ports, they are both situated behind strategic choke points. To reach the North Sea from St. Petersburg, ships must traverse the narrow passage between Denmark and Sweden, and to exit the Black Sea, they must travel through the even narrower Turkish Straits. It's the latter of these that is pivotal to Russian entry into World War I. Skipping ahead to that time, in episode 13, I proposed that historian Sean McMeekin had made a solid case for Russia being the ostensible instigator of that war. I'll reread the relevant passage from his book, July 1914, where he writes, The decision for European war was made by Russia on the night of 29th of July 1914, when Tsar Nicholas II, advised unanimously by his advisers, signalled the order for general mobilisation. So clearly did the Tsar know this that, on being moved by a telegram from Kaiser Wilhelm II, he changed his mind. I will not be responsible for a monstrous slaughter, is the key line of the entire July crisis, for it shows that the Tsar, for all his simplicity, knew exactly what he was doing when he did it. If Russia, at the least, played a large role in instigating the war, then the question becomes why? Here I'll principally draw on Dr. McMeekin's other work, The Russian Origins of the First World War. Russia's ostensible motive was the defence of Serbia from Austrian aggression. I think this can be dismissed out of hand as not being a reason great powers go to war, any more than Britain went to war in defence of Belgium. Sean McMeekin points out that it's not consistent with Russian diplomatic correspondence or actions towards Serbia prior to or during the war. At the outbreak of war, Russian forces pivoted south into Austria as opposed to moving east into Germany. This was much to the displeasure of the French, who obviously wanted the Russians to alleviate German pressure on the Western Front by moving towards Berlin. The problem was that Russian territorial ambitions lay in Austria. Russian Poland, including Warsaw, jutted out and was surrounded on three sides, north and west by Germany, and to the south by Austria. Russian strategy was to conquer the Austrian province of Galicia, up to and including the Carpathian Mountains. This would create a geographical boundary which the Russian state could more securely sit behind. This comes from the fact that the land between Central Europe and Russia is largely a flat open plain, hence Napoleon had been able to march his armies all the way to Moscow. It's another geostrategic weakness Russia suffers from. This was exacerbated by the advent of the railway, with the Russian government reluctant to develop railways in Poland for fear they could be captured and used to transport enemy troops to the east. In spite of suffering massive losses against the Germans in the early months of the war, due to the slow mobilisation of the Austrian army, Russia was able to take the territory it sought quickly. The major Russian objective, however, lay in capturing the Turkish Straits. These consist of two narrow passages, the Dardanelles and the Bosporus. In the context of the war, they're often referred to as Gallipoli, 
as that's where the major battle ended up being fought. All this can be referred to as the Russian objective to capture Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. For simplicity's sake, I'll predominantly refer to them as the Turkish Straits. Whatever they're called, access to them was absolutely essential to the developing Russian economy, with around half of Russia's expanding export trade moving through them. In 1912, the Turkish government had briefly closed them during the Italian-Turkish War. That's the one that led to Italy capturing Libya. This cost Russia one-third of its total Black Sea trade for that year, around £4 billion in today's money. Russia also depended on access to the Straits for imports, with heavy industry in Ukraine grinding to a halt whenever they closed. There was also a military consideration. Under the 1878 Treaty of Berlin, more on this in a moment, Russia was not allowed to move warships through the Straits in either direction. This meant that she was unable to send her Black Sea fleet to aid in the war with Japan, a factor in her loss. It also meant that whilst the Ottoman Empire was free to build up a strong navy by purchasing ships, Russia could not anchor any ships she purchased in the Black Sea. She would have to build her own or go without. Quite simply, closing the straits could cause Russia's rapid economic development to falter and for her to lose her great power status. By 1914, the situation was coming to a crunch point. The Ottomans had five dreadnoughts on order. By June, two of them were ready to sail, and the Russians knew that as soon as they crossed into the Black Sea, the Turks would be totally dominant there. Any chance of taking the straits would be gone indefinitely. It also probably didn't ease Russian nerves that the final ship on order was to be called Mohammed the Conqueror. However coincidental it is or isn't, the summer of 1914 represented Russia's last opportunity for conquest there. Changing lanes, let's ask what would Britain and France, Russia's wartime allies, make of such an ambition? Prior to looking at the historical detail, we could assume not a lot. In fact, denying Russian control had been a major geostrategic imperative for both empires for at least the previous 60 years. Britain and France had gone to war with Russia in 1853 the Crimean War, for exactly this reason. They had been prepared to sacrifice 40,000 and 135,000 men, respectively, just to stop the bear in her tracks. Neither country received any territorial reward beyond that. The Russians lost nearly half a million men in the effort and ended up being forbidden from sailing militarised vessels in the Black Sea. During the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-8, the Royal Navy had been dispatched to the Straits to prevent their capture. It was after this conflict that the Treaty of Berlin allowed Russia to maintain warships in the Black Sea, but prevented all nations moving warships through the Straits. French fears were expressed by the First World War President Raymond Poincaré. In a letter to his ambassador in St. Petersburg, he wrote, Possession of Constantinople would introduce Russia into the concert of Western nations, and this would give her a chance to become a great naval power. Everything would thus be changed in the European equilibrium. Poincaré feared that once Germany had been defeated, Russia would have little reason to adhere to the Franco-Russian alliance, and as a result, her naval expansion would undermine French interests. In this series, I've been examining the perfidious Albion theory of the First World War, that England played a major role in engineering the war, in order to knock out rising imperial competitor Germany. If this theory is true, 
it doesn't make sense that the British would do this by massively empowering their perhaps even greater imperial rival, Russia. In episode 7, I explored how Britain had formed an alliance with Japan, supplying her ships in order to check Russian expansion into China. Ever paranoid about a Russian incursion into India, the British Empire essentially recruited Japan as its guardian. At the outbreak of the First World War, it was Russia's economy, not Germany's, that was the fastest growing in Europe, with vast increases in both population and railway networks too. The Russian Empire is reckoned to have expanded at a rate of 20 miles a day since the time of Peter the Great, and threatened British interests both in India and the Middle East. Yet in the years running up to the war, Britain did an about-face, and suddenly warmed to the idea of Russian control of the Turkish Straits, allowing her to become a great naval power. Foreign Secretary Edward Grey essentially enacted a revolutionary shift in British foreign policy towards Russia. At the Anglo-Russian Convention of 1907, the two countries came to an agreement to divide Iran into spheres of influence, where roughly speaking, Britain would get the south of the country and Russia the north. Agreements were also reached around Afghanistan and Tibet. This was done with the aim of settling Asian disputes so full attention could be given to Europe and Germany. Edward Grey commented that, if Asiatic things are settled favourably, the Russians will not have any trouble with us about entrance to the Black Sea. The old policy of closing the straits against her and throwing her weight against her at any conference of the powers will be abandoned. The Russians seem to believe all this to be genuine, with Foreign Minister Sergei Sazarov optimistically saying, The English, in pursuit of political aims of vital importance in Europe, will abandon, in case of necessity, certain interests in Asia, simply in order to maintain the convention with us, which is so important for them. Edward Grey proposed opening the straits to all warships, the most he could offer without inciting members of his own party. When war broke out, he accepted the Russian seizure of Constantinople and the Straits as legitimate war aims. With the outbreak of war, the British followed a Russian demand to not send the two warships I mentioned to the Ottoman Empire. They were withheld by Winston Churchill for use in the British Navy. The Ottomans were not at that time at war with the Allies, so in making the request, Russian intentions were clear. They were made clearer still by the secret mobilisation of the Russian army on the Ottoman frontier as early as July 27, 1914. Why did British foreign policy change? Historian Neil Ferguson attributes this about-face to Russia being weakened by the loss of Japan and domestic unrest after the 1905 revolution. Germany simply appeared as a much greater threat. Sean McMeekin takes a similar position, saying that Constantinople and the Straits simply no longer played such an important role for Britain and France when European war loomed that which had been worth sacrificing over 200,000 lives of the grandparents of the current generation, was just no longer so important. A counter-thesis is presented by Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor in their book Hidden History, The Secret Origins of the First World War, and more substantially in the sequel, Prolonging the Agony. For Doherty and McGregor, geopolitical realities hold firm. Britain and France had not in any sense warmed to the idea of Russia taking the Turkish Straits, it was all a ruse to lure her into the war. Let's look at the evidence they present. After being denied their battleships from Britain, the Ottomans signed a secret peace treaty with Germany, which did not commit them to war. Germany would defend the Ottoman Empire if it was attacked, in return for an Ottoman pledge to remain neutral. The Germans fully intended on bringing the Ottomans into the war at the first opportunity, 
and saw their two battleships in the Mediterranean as the way to do so. At the outbreak of war, the battleships Goben and Breslau began bombarding French positions on the Algerian coast. From there, they were ordered to sail to the Straits. The Turks wanted ships to replace the ones the British had reneged on sending, whilst the Germans hoped this action would violate Turkish neutrality. There were a total of 73 British and French ships in the Mediterranean, so there's really very little chance the Goban and the Breslau should have made it. Yet against all odds, make it they did, with a series of fortunate, or unfortunate, depending on your perspective, coincidences on their side. These coincidences are what Doherty and McGregor highlight as being beyond suspicious, claiming the British and French fully wanted the German ships to reach their destination, so Russia would not be able to take the straits. They also wanted the Ottomans in the war, so their empire could be dismembered afterwards. Some of the examples they cite are, the French navy, having the majority of ships in the Mediterranean in line of their agreement of the English, do not seem to have given chase. The German battleships entered the narrow strait between Italy and Sicily in order to recall. The British navy were ordered not to pursue as to not violate neutral Italy's territorial waters. Fair enough, maybe, but this restriction was rescinded as soon as the moment had passed. A bizarre and false report was sent to the British Mediterranean fleet that Austria had declared war and containing her substantial fleet in the region was now the priority. This report, attributed to a simple error, cost the British over 24 hours of time, essentially allowing the German ships to get away. As an aside, I can't help but think of the Gulf of Tonkin incident, where a false naval report initiated the whole Vietnam War. The British ships were always out of position, due to not knowing what the destination of the German ships would be. They could have been intending to double back to escape the Mediterranean, or head south to attack Alexandria and the Suez Canal. The problem with this is that there are various reasons to believe the intended destination was known in London all along. The German government had informed the Greeks of their intentions, and there is evidence this information was passed through multiple sources, including British Admiral Mark Kerr, the commander of the Greek Navy. Britain was also decrypting radio messages between Berlin and her ships. The two British admirals pursuing the German ships suffered reputational damage. Admiral Ernst Trowbridge was put on charges and later exonerated, whilst Admiral Archibald Milne wrote a book in his own defence after the war. As I've mentioned, under the 1878 Treaty of Berlin, the Ottoman Empire was not permitted to allow foreign warships to pass through the Straits. They fudged this by buying the Goban and Breslau, whilst keeping the German crews. Refusal to dismiss the crews led to a British blockade and the Ottomans mining and closing the straits. This guaranteed war of Russia, as the Germans, the Russians, and perhaps everybody, had hoped. On the 29th of October, Turkish Minister of War Enver Pasha authorised the Goban and Breslau to attack Russian ports on the Black Sea, bringing Turkey into the war. Pasha was actually a disastrous military commander, who caused that year's crop to fail by conscripting all the young men, who he then proceeded to have killed in the tens of thousands in a fruitless attack on the Russians. Over on the Eastern Front, Russia had made its desired territorial gains in Austria, whilst at the same time being soundly beaten by Germany, to the cost of hundreds of thousands of men. There was a concern Russia might make a separate peace with Germany, a disaster for the Allies. According to the British military attaché in St. Petersburg, Russian generals were beginning to suspect the Allies were delaying a French offensive 
in order to waste Russian troops so they would not emerge too strong from the war. At this point, stronger promises for post-war Russian control of the Straits were made. Edward Grey told the Russian ambassador, If and when Germany is crushed, the question of Constantinople and the Straits must be settled in accordance with your interests. Whilst King George V told him, As concerns Constantinople, it is clear that it must be yours. Upon being shown the transcript of this conversation, Tsar Nicholas pronounced it to be wonderful. From the Russian end, when the French were perceived as dragging their feet on making such a promise, Foreign Minister Sergei Sazonov threatened to resign and allow a known Germanophile to take over. This would all but guarantee Russian peace with Germany. It's around this time Winston Churchill proposes the campaign to take the Dardanelles, the exterior choke point of the Turkish Straits. The military part of this campaign becomes known as Gallipoli, after the northern peninsula of those straits, where soldiers would ultimately land. It ended up being one of the most disastrous campaigns in British military history, with 56,000 Allied soldiers being killed for absolutely no gain whatsoever. I'm going to play some clips from the historian Robin Pryor. Doherty and MacGregor reference Dr. Pryor's book, Gallipoli, The End of the Myth, as it is a highly critical account of the feasibility of the campaign. They differ, however, in their reasons as for why it was such a disaster. Let's first listen to Dr. Pryor's explanation of the motivation for this venture. The dilemma, as the British government saw it uh, anyway, was that trench lines had now been solidified from the uh, English Channel to neutral Switzerland. And several attempts had been made to break those trench lines by the French and the British, and they'd failed. Um, They'd failed with some slaughter. And one of the people who witnessed that slaughter was Winston Churchill, the first Lord of the Admiralty, the civilian head of the Navy in Britain. And he thought there must be a way of bringing the enormous preponderance of sea power that Britain possessed uh, to affect the result of the war. He put forward a series of more or less harebrained schemes uh, to attack islands off the German coast, uh, to enter the Baltic. Um, They were all knocked down by the admirals because they risked the Grand Fleet. Um, We don't hear much of the Grand Fleet, but it was the context in which Britain fought the war. Uh, So eventually he came up with the idea of using ships surplus to the Grand Fleet, old battleships, to break through the Dardanelles, uh, proceed up to Constantinople, and knock Turkey out. So it sounds like a case of when your only tool is a hammer. Doherty and McGregor, however, contend that the campaign was really about ensuring Russia stayed in the war by dangling the prize of the Straits before her. In his book, The World Crisis, Winston Churchill writes about encouraging Russia to dwell upon the prizes of victory, Doherty and McGregor interpret the Dardanelles campaign in this light. Let's listen to Robin Pryor again on how the campaign was supported by the British government. So the body that was running the war in Britain was a, uh, a, uh, a committee of the cabinet called the War Council. And like any body of politicians, they were agreeable to any scheme providing it worked. And Churchill uh, had a very persuasive way of selling uh, military schemes to uh, civilian colleagues, all of whom, of course, had been brought up under the Pax Britannica in the 19th century. 
they were all convinced with Churchill that ships, that sea power, must be able to affect uh, land operations and there must be a way of avoiding the impending slaughter on the Western Front. So when he brings this scheme to them, they all agree um, on the grounds that it's going to be cheap, you're only going to use old battleships, the Turks will surrender because they're unspeakable and militarily incompetent, and it's all going to be very easy. On that basis, they agree to the plan. Yet Doherty and McGregor highlight how many of the British admirals were adamantly opposed to the naval campaign, insisting it stood no chance of working without an additional land campaign. They quote Admiral Sir Henry Jackson as saying it would be mad to try and move the navy through without having the Gallipoli Peninsula held by our own troops or every gun on both sides of the straits destroyed. This echoed the sentiments of Admirals Jackie Fisher and Frederick Tudor, first and third sea lords respectively. Doherty and McGregor cite how protocols stopped these men from speaking out, whilst Churchill found an admiral sufficiently ignorant of the Dardanelles to agree to carry out the campaign. Let's listen to Robin Pryor describe how the attack went. The admirals would not risk the, the main ships of the Grand Fleet. They were to fight the Germans in the North Sea when the Germans came out and obligingly were defeated. Uh, the fact was that the Germans hardly ever came out during the First World War, only briefly anyway. Um, but the admirals would not risk the first-rate ships uh, of the Grand Fleet. Britain had about 30 or 40 more battleships, surplus to requirements, never to be used against modern German ships. And these were some of the ones that were sent to the uh, Dardanelles. Uh, not everyone will know that originally the plan was entirely naval. Entirely naval. And also that the French were uh, approached and they agreed to join um, in the naval campaign. Your book is scathing about both the plan, the naval plan, and also scathing about the execution of the plan. Say a little bit about what is not as well known, I think, in the story of Gallipoli as, as the first phase. Yeah, one of the ways Churchill sold this uh, to his colleagues was that no troops would be needed. Uh, the fleet would do the business. It would knock out the forts uh, guarding the Dardanelles. It would sweep the minefields uh, in those narrow waters. There were 350 mines there. Uh, and, and yet the naval operation was so badly planned uh, the key to the defences of the Dardanelles were the, was the minefields. Uh, but the Admiralty sent out Grimsby trawlers, trawlers from the northeast coast of England, um, manned by civilian crews in order to sweep them. Um, they never stood a chance. They could make four knots with their sweeps out. The current flowing down the Dardanelles is four knots. So they... There's often, a, put. there's often a northerly wind as well of guess what strength. <laughs> Four knots. Often the minesweepers would start off on their journey and finish up blown back outside the straits. Um, they swept four mines, three by dint of uh, three of the ships being blown up. Uh, it's one way to sweep a mine, but if you have 350 mines, you need 350 ships if, if you're going to do it that way. The other problem was with the old battleships. The guns were very worn. These were built in the 1890s, more or less, and uh, the barrels of the guns are worn. What that 
that matters because when a shell comes out of a worn barrel, it wobbles all over the place. Um, some of them just plopped over the end of the ship. Um, they hardly ever hit a fort. Only the two modern ships sent at the last minute by the Admiralty, the Queen Elizabeth and the Irresistible, uh, actually hit a fort and hit a gun. So the thing is very badly planned, the naval attack, and from uh, the beginning. And I took it from your account that it had no chance what, whatever of success. None at all. Um, none at all. None of the forts have been damaged except by landing parties. This is quite interesting. The uh, Turkish troops were not guarding these guns very closely and the ships managed to land landing parties of marines who did manage to blow up about 12 guns at the entrance uh, to the Dardanelles. They were the only guns of the forts that were hit. And that was it. Well, Churchill is very impatient with the naval campaign. It starts on February the 19th, 1915, and by mid-March it's got nowhere. Um, it's a desultory affair. A couple of ships enter the straits, fire a few shells, and then go home. Um, he goads the Admiral, Admiral Carden, into a full-scale naval attack on March the 18th. 18 battleships are going to take part, British and French, in, in this big uh, concerted effort. At the end of the day, a third of those ships are sunk, another third are damaged, um, and no forts have been hit and no mines have been swept. Uh, the Admiral, not Carden, who's collapsed with a stomach ulcer at this place, but his second in command, de Robeck, calls off the naval attack, essentially. Um, he thinks, rightly, you can only do this twice more if you lose a third of your force each time. Um, <laughs> He's, he's a cunning mathematician and, <laughs> and he's worked out with the third one he won't have any ships left at all. It's then decided to send in the army. So at this point the British government have actually sent a general uh, down to have a look at what's going on. In other words, there's unease in London that the naval plan... And that's Hamilton. That's, that's Hamilton. Yeah, it's not going to work. And Hamilton witnesses that uh, debacle on... Uh, March the 18th and from then from being able no troops, that was the way it was sold there were no troops, suddenly there are troops because uh, it's said by Lord Kitchener the Secretary of State for War that Britain's prestige cannot uh, suffer that sort of reverse and um, this is when the phrase no turning back no turning back the British find a uh, division the last of their regular divisions the 29th Division. They discover that there are some Australian and New Zealand troops training in Egypt uh, on their way to England uh, to take part in the fighting on the Western Front. They're training in Egypt because it's too wet in England. Uh, the French contributed division. One feels to watch the British. Um, the same reason the French contributed some ships. I mean, should the Ottoman Empire collapse, the French want their, their slice of it. Uh, as well. So uh, you've got a French division, a British division, the Anzac forces in Egypt and a few uh, ragbags from something called the Royal Naval Division. As, is it possible to say at that point what the War Council uh, would have imagined optimally might happen with the landing of the troops? They started writing papers along the lines of after Constantinople, the next steps. <laughs> um, 
This is before they've landed anybody. The, the idea was that the troops from the south, which were British, the 29th Division, were to push north to that, that narrow piece of water there called the Narrows. Uh, meanwhile, the Anzacs would land further north, dash across the peninsula, cut off any Turkish reinforcements that might uh, interfere with the British, and uh, then you would be at the Narrows. You could then demolish the forts, the troops could demolish the forts, and they would have unimpeded access to the minefields. Minefields would be swept, the fleet would go through and Constantinople, to Constantinople and it would fall. Yeah. Um, it didn't happen like that. Um, if you could briefly describe both the British landing and also what happened, say, over the period between late April and late June, early July uh, in that strip of the peninsula. Yep. This is the main landing. The, the main landing is at Hillis. The Anzac is in support. Um, the British land on five beaches. On three, they get ashore uh, with no opposition at all. Um, in two, there is much slaughter. Uh, these are at the end of the peninsula. Um, v Beach and W Beach. There's much slaughter there. Uh, two, three, and eventually 4,000 men are lost on the 25th of April 1915 on those beaches. The commander offshore, General Hunter Weston, he reinforces the two beaches that are where, the, where, where you have a failure, where the casualties are being caused, and he funnels troops into those for the rest of the day, thus ensuring that uh, by the end of the day the British are ashore, but they've lost so many casualties that there is no, now, no possibility of them making a rapid advance inland. They have to be reinforced first. By the time they're reinforced, the cunning Turks have reinforced their own troops. Um, they, the British inch forward, trenches are dug, a stalemate that looks very like the Western Front is existing now at Hellas. By June. By June uh, early June 1915. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if we can just say we now get to July 1915, had anything substantial been achieved by the uh, English, no. Australian, New Zealand, French forces, Indian forces? No. No. Uh, what we've got is now uh, two areas of stalemate, uh, one at Hellas, uh, the other at Anzac Cove. Um, along the Anzac perimeter, and it's trench warfare uh, in both areas. Which um, is what it was designed to avoid. This is what it's designed to avoid. Uh, trenches are dug, machine guns are put in position. What little artillery each side has is brought to bear. Um, the naval guns, which the British have thought would make a big effect, are almost useless because they're very flat trajectory. And when you're firing in an area with a lot of gullies and hills, um, they're not much use. So it's a stalemate. Yeah. And in, again, I use the term collective memory for this. In Australian collective memory, I think the most memorable parts of what happened happened in the following month, in yes. August, yes. when um, the, uh, you know, the names like Neck, Lone Pine are associated with the August offensive for, for Surrey Bar, Bear, sorry. Um, could you say, I mean, th that was probably the most 
significant, it seems to me, the most reprehensible part of the campaign insofar as Australians were concerned. just wonder if you could say a little bit about the August offensive. And yeah. I mean, your book suggests that it had no chance whatever of succeeding. Uh, none at all. It's about as useful as a naval attack um, in general terms. By July, um, back in London, people are starting to get restless. Um, this looks awfully like the Western Front. They, they've got two options. Get out, evacuate, or try for another offensive. And they send out three divisions of extra troops to try and break the stalemate. The idea is that this will be broken now from the Anzac perimeter. Um, troops will uh, uh, spread out to the north to avoid the trench lines that are confronting them. And at the same time, uh, there'll be a British landing at Suvla Bay. You can see that marked on the map. Um, the British landing is designed merely to establish a base. They need some flat ground uh, for all the stores and ammunition and food uh, that this northern force is going to consume through the winter. The idea of a quick dash to Constantinople is now gone, but what they're thinking is that if they can gain some ground, hang on uh, to the spring of 1916, then that might be the time to get through to Constantinople. So you have two operations, um, close to each other but unrelated. The Anzac one, the big left hook, uh, and the landing in Suvla Bay. One of the things that amazed me about, again, reading your book, was that Charles Bean, normally the most sober and realistic of historian, still writes in the official history that if Sir Bear had been taken, uh, the whole, not only would Constantinople fall, but the war might have been turned in the favour of the Allies. He, he said that. Yes, he did. Um, I was amazed to read that because he normally is rather sober, but he's got carried away here. Um, what's carried him away is during those operations out of the Anzac perimeter, a couple of small groups of, of men got on top of a, some very small points on that third ridge, Sari Bear. There are some New Zealanders on Chanak Bear, one of the hills, and there are some Gurkhas, because there are Indian troops there as well. A brigade of Indian troops is introduced in June. They're there, and they're on another hill called Hill Q. Now, they only hold these small hills for a very short time. They're counterattacked off because the Turks have the numbers. And yet, people can... If you stand on, sorry, uh, stand on Chanak Bear, you can see the straits. And Bean, after the war, stood on Chark Bear and he saw the straits and he thought it was wonderful and he declared that uh, this was the opportunity. Um, it wasn't the opportunity. Uh, between uh, Chark Bear, between that ridge and the straits, are many more ridges. Ah, but Bean said uh, the Turks couldn't have hold the, held those because we would have held the higher ridges. When you think about it, Turks held the higher ridges and we clung to the lower slopes for eight months uh, and they couldn't dislodge us. Why, in reverse, this would have uh, suddenly been different, I don't, I don't know. But it's, it's a complete furphy. Uh, the country between Surrey Bear and uh, the, the, the Narrows is very difficult indeed and it includes uh, a formidable 
uh, plateau, the Kilid Bar Plateau, with sides 500 uh, feet high, up which you would also have to advance. So Robin Pryor has it that the British could not afford to lose face. Doherty and McGregor posit that the Allies remained under pressure from the Russians. The Tsar knew that the Straits could not have been taken by naval power alone, so a good show of ground forces had to be made to appear sincere. The whole campaign was designed to fail so that the Straits would not be handed over to the Russians. Was the operation justifiable in terms of strategic value if it had been a success? Again, here's Dr. Pryor. The idea was that once Constantinople had surrendered, which it was bound to do, um, it probably wouldn't have surrendered, but let's supposing it had. The French and the British would then have led uh, a Balkan alliance made up of the armies of uh, Bulgaria, Romania, Greece, Montenegro and Serbia and attacked um, Austria-Hungary and Germany from the rear. That was the idea. And if you add up the, those armies, they come to something just over a million men. There's a problem here, um, and there's more than one problem. The, problem. the first problem is these armies were basically peasant levies. They didn't have the modern equipment uh, that the British, the French and the Germans uh, had. The Romanians, for example, turned out two shells per day. That's not per gun, that's two shells per day. Artillery was the big killer in this war. The Romanians were not going to kill many people uh, with those shells. The other thing about the Romanian artillery uh, I love, that they were ox-drawn guns. Uh, there's something farcical about ox-drawn guns. Um, how would they have advanced up the Danube Valley? With great difficulty. There's only one major railway line. You would needed far more infrastructure than that to support uh, a million men. The other problem was that the uh, armies of all these countries would have had to agree to other armies traversing their territory. Now, for those who remember the First and Second Balkan Wars, uh, especially the second one, uh, where these states fought each other, the problem is they hate each other much more than they hate the Austro-Hungarians and Germans. That's the problem. The coalition probably would have been one of the very unwilling indeed and may have collapsed before it started. But let's supposing that the coalition exists and somehow the oxen plod up the Danube Valley. Um, they, here they come, plod, plod, plod. Um, then they come to the Alps. Am, am, I, am I getting through here? Uh, then they come to the Alps. Now, Hannibal uh, did get some elephants across, but these elephants were not pulling 60-pounder guns, not pulling 9.2-inch howitzers. Um, you couldn't have got them uh, over the Alps. The other thing about the Alps is the top of them is occupied by the Austrian and German forces. Um, it would have collapsed right there. In my view, it, it wouldn't have even started because of the internecine hatreds of these states for each other uh, and the poor equipment uh, that they had. But had you formed such a coalition, we've come to grief somewhere in the foothills of the Alps. Uh, it wouldn't have shortened the war by a single day. The whole thing was futile.
We can safely conclude that nothing about this whole endeavour to capture the Turkish Straits made any sense. Not the German ships escaping, the naval campaign, the land campaign, or the overarching strategy. This is unless, of course, the intention was not what was presented, and it was actually a grand act of theatre to keep the Russians in the war whilst denying them the Straits. I'm not sure I can prove this is the case, but it does make sense of everything. I could draw a comparison to the Boer War, which we looked at in episode 11. The British did not intend to kill thousands of women and children in concentration camps, but they did, and this had the rather fortunate consequence of forcing a Boer surrender. In World War I, we could say the British did not intend their military efforts at Gallipoli to be disastrous, but they were and this had the effect of continuing a long-held British geostrategic objective. How fortunate. Of course, none of this makes any sense if the Russians stay the course of the war and sit victorious at the negotiating table when the Ottoman Empire is carved up between the Allies. They could have demanded their share of the spoils. Is it more than coincidence, then, that the Russian Revolution prevented this? I'll play one further clip. This one of historian Ralph Rako. He's telling a story about Alexander Kerensky, the Russian revolutionary who led the provisional government of the short-lived Russian Republic. This is until it was overthrown by Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks in the famous October Revolution. Kerensky explains the importance the Straits held in the Russian mind. By the way, these are the secret treaties of 1915, where the Entente powers in uh, the classical imperialist manner divide up the spoils that will uh, come to them once the war is over. <clears throat> the um, uh, Russians, for instance, are to gain Constantinople and the Straits, um, which means control of the Balkans and the eastern Mediterranean. This is the major reason to talk about uh, things snowballing and having consequences. When the Tsar is overthrown in 1917, a, a moderate and democratic government comes to power, as you probably know, led by Kerensky. This government refuses the one condition that the Russian peoples demand of their new government, which is peace. Um, a friend of mine uh, happened to teach at Stanford many years ago, Stanford University. This is in the late 60s. And, um, Stanford is a very fine university. My friend taught Western civilization. There happened to be, at that time, at the Hoover Institution, in residence, Alexander Kerensky. So my friend happens to be, uh, his name is Ron, happens to be somewhat uh, pushy, coming from New York and all. <coughs> gives a call, gives a call to the Hoover Institution. Kerensky says, sure, I'll come over and, and uh, address your class <laughs> of Stanford freshmen addressing the, the class of Stanford freshmen on the Rus Russian Revolution. Okay, what happened? And <clears throat> my friend had uh, a lunch with him afterwards and said to him, why didn't you make peace? You were in power, why didn't you make peace? Lenin would never have gained control. And uh, Kerensky said, we could not do that. It would have been <clears throat> a betrayal of, of our valiant allies. Countries on occasion betray allies for their own interests. The reason is the, the secret treaties. They had to stay in the war in order to get what they'd been promised, 
which was what the Tsars had been aiming at for generations. They would control, they would not only have the Black Sea as a total uh, uh, haven and free port for the Russian Navy, they would have access to the Mediterranean. And once they got that, once the war was over, then that great imperialist expansion and victory would solidify their position with the Russian people. So for that, they remained in the war and uh, were beaten by, by Lenin. That leaves us in a good place for the next episode, where I'll jump into the various theories about the Russian Revolution and its backers in the West. Thank you very much for listening. A reading list of books I've drawn upon is in the info box, along with details of how to join the forum and support this show.